following conversation is with Matt Sweetwood, a Renaissance man. Matt Sweetwood is the CEO of Greener Process Systems. He single-handedly raised five daughters into adulthood as a single father. He's the author of Leader of the Pack. He's a speaker, a photography expert, among many other accolades and attributes. I've known Matt for years. Matt's a fine man. The wisdom of this man is second to none. He's seen much, he's been through much, and he's accomplished much. During this conversation, we speak about being a young, single father left to raise five girls all by himself. We speak about inner strength and inner turmoil, scratching the itch, changing the world, and his book, Leader of the Pack. I hope that you'll enjoy this episode, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Matthew Sweetwood. Matt Sweetwood, I appreciate you taking the time to come on to the podcast. We already had a conversation for about 20 minutes before, which I think is going to do well to direct the rest of the conversation. But thank you for coming, and how are you? I am great, Matt. Thanks for having me on. And I am thrilled to be on a podcast with an old friend. It's the best kind. I appreciate that. So let me ask you, before this conversation, what was the last conversation that you had? Where, where have you been? Actually, I, I shamefully admit I did a podcast for woman who was a little bit later in life and she actually kept writing me be on my podcast be on my podcast and it was one of these funny funny moments i i wish it were fox of course or i wish it were nbc or something like that because we all have big egos right and i get my hair done i get i didn't do my hair for this interview i'm just letting you know <laughs> me it's neither too, it's too casual um and she's like okay matt tell me about yourself very interesting so what did you do before that this was the entire conversation, and I just had to fill up the space. And so my guess is that she's not going to do so well. I won't say who it is. And you won't know because, you know, they come out at, di at different times. But it was really kind of like a, a, funny, a funny kind of podcast where it's just like talk, which is okay, I guess. But, you know, you have some good ones and you have some not so good ones. And I know that our time's going to be great. I appreciate that. So let me ask you a few. These are things that I don't know quite about you yet. And I think they're going to help me frame some of the questions I want to ask you. How old were you when you had your when when you had your first kid? I was 22, three, something like that. 23. And you have how many children? I have five that I know about. <laughs> and now how how close are they all in age? Over what time period? They were eight. They're eight years apart. So, uh, you know, every other year almost kind of thing. Now, at, at a certain age, you became responsible, solely responsible for their for their upbringing and, and for their safety and for That's their, right. their lifestyle. At what age was that for you? It was uh, 18 months was the youngest, still in diapers through eight. And I got to write my... Uh, book it's up on a wall up there that that's it's not just a self-portrait in there that's the cover of my book leader of the pack how a single dad of five led his kids his business and himself from disaster to success get it on amazon 155 star reviews change people life but you get to write a book about when that happens to you no it was actually you know uh, and i know you know it's a little bit of a crazy circumstance lived in new jersey wife walked out spent five years through the court system, ended up with a sort of a side-related case that went to the Supreme Court and had one of the longest divorces in New Jersey history. In the end, ended up with, you know, full custody of all my children. What There must have been a moment, I don't know about the circumstances of that breakup, but I can imagine that there was some something that precipitated it. There was a feeling that it was coming on, not really knowing how bad a situation like that can get until it actually gets that bad. At what point was there like an oh shit moment for you where you felt the full gravity of the fact that you were a dad with five kids and now this is all on your plate? I think it was, um, it actually came in a sequence of events. 
So when you are with a, and I'll, I'll use a non-medical term because I'm not a doctor, even though I have become somewhat of an expert at this kind of thing. When you're married or in a relationship with a disordered person, there is a brainwashing effect that goes on. And uh, this is not my my concept. This is uh, well known where you sort of put yourself in this sense of denial. And that denial allows you to go deep into and allow things that you would just say, how, how would I ever allow that to kind of happen in my life? And I think uh, for me, the, the first oh no moment came when the police ended up at the house. My wife had, uh, had sort of decomposed to the point where she was threatening to kill herself. She drove away in the car at a high rate of speed of car. She didn't have to drive a stick shift car and said she was going to kill herself. The police came. She ended up fighting, literally getting into a fist fight with the police on the thing and they arrested her and the whole bit. That's when one of those moments when sort of like it all ended, I'm like, this probably isn't going to end well. And I'm sitting there looking at five little kids because they were very little at the time, scared out of their minds. And I'm like, what are you going to do when you're going to have to take care of them? And then you sort of, you're confused because you're in this brainwash state. So you're like, I just want, I just want my, my wife to come back, even though she's like, if you know what's going on, you read the book, Leader of the Pack, you're going to be like, Matt, what's wrong with you? The book is all about all the stupid things I've done in my life and all of the mistakes I've made and my wrong views and things, and hopefully people learn from it. So I think that was the first moment. And then I think when she moved out for good, and you sort of have this moment where you're like, I was supposed to be the guy to go to work, you know, bring home the money, you pat the kids on the head, you know, when you leave, you come home, you give them all hugs, you eat dinner. You do a little homework, you throw the football around, you wrestle with them a little bit, you watch Monday Night Football, rinse and repeat. But now all of a sudden, you know, th and this is back in the 90s where, you know, a guy like me, I, I didn't know how, anything about raising kids. You know, that was not, being a single dad was, you know, now it's kind of like it has some uh, cachet to it, but that's probably because of declining testosterone rates, but that's a whole different, that's a whole different discussion. Um, anyway, so uh, I, I think it was those two moments, that sort of moment where, I mean, in my life, the police showing up in my house, I mean, I would never, uh, ne was never even, never even a thought. So, right. and I, I talk about that, like I said, in my book, but for me, those were, those were the moments, and it was a very scary moment for me, but probably the most important moment in my life. You know, you're, you're there, you're looking at five of the most beautiful creations on the planet, right? You, you realize that there's a lot that you're going to have to do. You realize that there's a lot riding on it. Is there a moment where you feel as though you're afraid to move because there's only one right move and you're not sure exactly what that move is? I, I think at first... I was more in a state of feeling sorry for myself. So, you know, when you're sort of feeling sorry for yourself, you just kind of like start to come up with excuses. You're like, I don't want to do this. Maybe I should just run away. I wish my wife would just come back, even after she's been incredibly abusive and done all sorts of <laughs> unacceptable things. I'm laughing about it now, but it wasn't very funny um, at the time. It's that sort of internal, I like to think God gave me a kick or inspiration or something like that. But for me, I just think it's one of those moments where I looked at those five little kids. We all of us, by the way, at the time, despite what I look like now, we all have blonde hair, blue eyed, you know, all five of us sort of looking at them and they're looking up at me and they're like, dad, so what's up? <laughs> you know, how are we going to, what are we doing? Right? Like what's next kind right. of thing. And you have this moment and you're like, you know, if I don't do something, these kids are going to end up in a very, very bad way. Jail on drugs, losers 
whatever the hell it is, you got to really want to make this better. And I'm not even telling you at the time, of course, at the same time, I was moving my business. My business was struggling. I was moving into a new facility. It's like a total, total mess. So I just think that it's just that internal moment, just love for your kids. And you just sort of say, time to man up. I almost named my book Man Up, by the way. So I was, it's time to man up. And you just start to piece it together one little thing at a time. And I don't know, somehow eventually you eventually make it get get to the right right spot, I, I think. Everybody has some story that they can relate to in their mind. I, I think particularly with men, because we're often most of the time rightfully so, I think that that we're overlooked because we are we're the sacrificial component of the population you know we, we've always kept our, our mothers and our sisters and our and our daughters safe right and, and that's why we've always been the expendable in many regards i think that that's okay was there more than one rock bottom right like when you thought that it couldn't get any worse how many times did it keep getting worse before you like realize that there's no way that it can get any any harder than this this is it Okay, so that's an interesting question. So I would say, I, I think we were in court over four or five years, probably a dozen times. Mm -hmm. And I lost all dozen hearings. Now, some people would say, well, you ended up with custody of your kids. But along the way, if anybody's ever been to the New Jersey family court system, and you are male, you are not in for not in for a good a good ride. I'll tell you an interesting story, uh, a sort of a little side anecdote to this. So I would say that those moments and when the final judgment came down and I had custody of all five kids and they awarded my wife lifetime alimony because they were in some sort of crazed state in New Jersey and knew that they were giving her more money than you had for your five kids. And somehow you had a business that was failing that was supposed to come up with this money and your kids are struggling because they've been abandoned by their mother and other things by their mother. And I think that there were many, many times when I thought it couldn't get worse and it, it got a lot worse. And I'll tell you a story about the New Jersey court system since we're both Jersey guys. So I ran an electronics store in New Jersey for a long time, really well-known one. And we had customers in there, uh, well-known athletes would come in and stuff. And there was a New Jersey Devils player that used to come in. And he came in one day, I became friendly with him. A bunch of them came in, but a particular one, I won't say who it is, um, came in and I'm like, dude, what's the matter? You're looking, he goes, he goes, I'm, he goes, I'm done, I'm done. I'm going, what happened? He goes, I just got out of family court. And he asked me, I said, who is your judge? Because I knew the judge. And he had the same judge that I had. And he was an enforcer. Let me translate that. He basically had 97 concussions in his career. And he would always tell me that his short-term memory was shot. He goes, make sure you write stuff down. If you give me like a, a instruction on how to use equipment or something, write down. I can't, I can't remember. And he goes, I was just in court and they were going to give her all the money that I was going to earn this season. He goes, I won't, I'm not going to curse on your podcast, but effing, there is no effing way I'm going to go take another concussion and give that money to that bitch. So he ended up actually quitting his NHL career and moving back to his home country and playing because they were going to give away all his money and he was going to have to, like men do, suffer. No kids. There were no kids involved or anything. Just they were going to give her like some crazy amount of money and he had enough of it. So he lost. He ended his his NHL career early because of the court system. In my case, I ended up working for 20 years of my life and giving most of the money away and struggling with my five kids who their mother never saw again. So I had some pretty, pretty low points in there. But like I said before, the mother leaving and my having to raise the kids on my own was the best thing that ever happened to me in my life. Did you break down in front of your kids? 
Were there times where you broke down in front of your kids? Never, never. I always had the, I always had sort of the sense to do a couple of things. One was to never badmouth the mother to the kids, even though in the beginning she would see them a little bit and then eventually she never saw them again. She would see them and she would badmouth me to them, tell her, I'd tell them I beat her. I threw her out of the house. She wants to come back, but they don't end up letting her. And then she would all sorts of things like that in the book. And I would always remain strong in front of them because I felt like, you know, it's sort of like the captain of the ship. You know, if the captain of the ship looks scared, um, that's not going to be very good for the morale or the functioning of the crew. Now your children are all grown adults. Yeah, how old yeah. is how old is the youngest one? Uh, she is uh, 95. I have to add because they they with five of them they keep changing years. She is um, 95, uh, 95, 27, 20, 25. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. so we went from 18 months to 25. 25 yep. Mm-hmm. And so she's she's had heartbreak. She's you know lost things she thought she had. She's gained things she thought she never would. She's she's run the full gamut of you know be, beginner life experience for a for a twenty five year old. Do your children now know the strength that you must have had and displayed? Even though you know you never broke down in front of them and you never showed that you you were always a pillar of strength. Do they know what it means each of them now to be? What a, what a pillar of strength is. Can they now sympathize with you in some way, the, like with the work you had to put in? I, I would say a little bit. I would say that my oldest daughter, who now has two children of her own, mm -hmm. I'm a grandfather, two granddaughters there. Um, Congratulations. And is working. She's working. Because in today's world, even though her and her husband have very good incomes, you know, today's world, it's a no fooling around. They live in, they live out in near Chicago. So it's an expensive place to live. Um, she has two grandchildren. She, since her second child has become extremely understanding and maybe in awe of my having five on my own and, um, you know, not having a partner, um, was, uh, was, so I, I've become very close to my oldest daughter for sure. Um, the younger ones, I think they've been a little bit more affected by the culture of the sort of a sense of entitlement, let's put it that way. And I think that, well, life always eventually teaches everybody. I think that their sense of what I did is not as strong. I mean, they know, they will articulate it. You ask them, they'll be like, yeah, my dad's amazing. He raised us as a single dad. But there's a difference between just sort of articulating it because you think it's the right thing to say and sort of understanding it in terms of, their appreciation for me. All five of my kids were raised in, you know, an affluent town in New Jersey through lots of struggles. I could have put myself in a much better situation for Matt by moving to um, Bloomfield, New Jersey, as opposed to where we were. I put them through the best colleges. You're talking Columbia, Northwestern, George Washington University, Elliott School of International Affairs, and so on. They all graduated and left school debt-free with that debt on my back. So they went out into the world with top degrees from top universities, debt-free. Now, and I did that through enormous struggles, business struggles, debt, having to pay their mom for never seeing them again. Do they appreciate um, the strength that that required? The answer is probably not. It'll take a while. They're still a little young because most of them are still in their 20s. And mm -hmm. as we all know, brains... <laughs> particularly in this generation, don't form until like sometime in 40, right? So so I really wanted to answer your question in the deepest, not give you sort of some trite answer, you know, oh, yes, they, they love their dad. They think that I'm, no, 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 no. They definitely, I'll be honest, they definitely need to 
I, when they have kids of, you know, you know, this is cliche, right? It's like when they have kids of their own, they are going to really understand. They're going to really understand what happened for sure. You know, it's funny because my, my mom used to say that. She used to say, you'll never know how much I love you until you have children of your own. And you really don't know what that means until you have children of your own. Um, it, it's one thing to say that I would do anything for you. I would die. for. It's another thing to not even have to say it. Those reflexes are just built into the machine and they require no thought. I mean, the, the right thing is always the right thing, especially when it comes to protecting and loving your kids. Um, and it does come easy. When did you see that light? at the end of the tunnel. I, uh, once again, I don't think for me, there was no like, um, I, I'll tell you when the real light hit, but it was a little bit different than you think. So for me, I think the first time was when really alone with my last daughter, we were, we were living, you know, I had rented a house. I couldn't afford to buy a house anymore at the time. I think my ex-wife was living a very nice house that she bought, but I couldn't afford to live in a house. So I was renting a house in town in New Jersey. And my daughter was like 16, 17 years old, my youngest, really independent. I moved her to a spot where she could have independence before she drove. She was able to walk into town. She got a job like waitressing or, you know, at a pizza place or something like that. She was able to walk to school. And she started to become independent. And then I had my own freedom with that and her freedom with that. That was sort of the first time where I realized I was going to make it, like really going to make it. And then I think when she eventually went off to college and I was for the for, literally for the first time in my life, not married to anybody, not in relationship, no kids, like alone, like, you know, <laughs> like the first time you go to the beach, right? And sort of like, oh my gosh, I think it, I think it was that. And then sort of being stuck not being able to get out of a business I had run for 25 years, which had a lot of great moments, but it was so difficult. And it was difficult to really, really make big money there. And it was like the old Willy Wonka gobstopper machine. I don't know if you know the reference, where you have this machine that's a block long and you have all these gears and everything winding and out comes a little candy at the end. So the way I always viewed, viewed this business, I think when I was able to exit that business, for me, this is like, I exited that business and then best moment of my life outside. Wait, wait, wait. I got to say it like this, right? Because we don't want to be accused. Outside the birth of my five children. Okay. The greatest. The best moment in Matt's life was when I had sold my business. My rental in New Jersey was up and I walked into my apartment, high rise apartment overlooking lower Manhattan. And I walked into my apartment. I had exited the business. I finally was in a place where money wasn't going in the reverse direction. It was kind of like I was okay, not amazing, but okay financially. And I looked out that window and I was in New York living large. And for me, that was like, I like literally did like the Super Bowl spike by myself in the apartment. To me, that was like the, the best more. I was free, no more stuff. I had like one, you know, one bedroom apartment full of stuff, free, no obligations. No, I mean, it was just, an amazing moment and it feels it feels like it was all worth it right for that for that moment yeah yeah absolutely at that moment you know i'm still young enough to enjoy it all and for me that was a really really big moment and then of course new york turned to complete crap and a couple of years later i had to leave but once again we'll leave that with the lowering male testosterone rate discussions <laughs> right how old were you when you were standing in in new york and you're looking out and you felt like like this was it like 
that the hard parts over. 52, something like this, just a few years ago. So as a matter of fact, um, I ended up on like the cover of the New York Post. They did this feature of um, sort of back, back to this, to, to, uh, moving back to New York City or moving to New York City in your 50s, single and happy. Oh, wow. And they did it. I wasn't the only one they featured, but they put me, this big picture of me on the cover of the of the Post, like of their, um, you know, one of the sections, you Lifestyle know, like the living section. Yeah, the style or living section or something like that. It's a great, it's an amazing PR thing. Like the full page with me standing there, like in, in some place in Manhattan. But uh, yeah, so for me, it was, it was uh, I don't want to call it a bucket list. Like maybe climbing Mount Everest is a bucket list. But for me, having like a, an apartment and being, I missed that. I had, as you pointed out in the beginning, I had kids when I was in my early 20s. Before that, I was school, 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 school. I, I didn't do that kind of stuff that people did. So I guess I did my life in reverse a little bit and I wanted to go play in New York City which didn't turn out to exactly as I had anticipated but um, it was a great adventure okay. I miss it in some ways too I miss the city in some ways so when you look back at, at how turbulent that was and how uncertain it was at times not knowing how it was going to work but just having faith like that it would you look back at that you have to have draw some sort of your personal strength some sort of your identity from from those scars right from those experiences you can talk to you know single mom single dad i mean you could speak to a lifestyle that that few people have had the displeasure of being able to or or pleasure being able to experience so you know that you got a very thick skin in a lot of in a lot of places. So what do you do now? Because for men, and, and I like to think for strong men, for alpha men, for for assertive men, we like to challenge ourselves. And I think that coming off of a, a high of knowing that you've brought your family to adulthood, knowing that they are safe, knowing that they're all taken care of, you feel like you're a million bucks and you're on top of the world. What do you do to find fulfillment at that part? Is that almost like, is there an empty spot there that's used to turmoil and used to trouble that you need to figure out how to how to feed or pacify in any way is there a um that's a very interesting question because i've coached people and i've coached people that really they don't feel comfortable without drama mm -hmm. i've definitely seen that for me that is definitely not the case i am um i i don't miss that kind of thing for me what floats my boat what drives me is success i've always been i always measured myself my excitement in life by success. Yeah, like you go on one of these, I always this is I always I always like to bring things to dating because it's like such a human experience dating that it has so many good analogies. Plus, I used to when I was in New York, I used to write articles about dating in New York and stuff like that. It was very, very interesting, particularly dating as a conservative person. Very interesting uh, moments there. I, I liken it to, you know, you look on women's profiles, and I'm not saying call me sexist, anything you want. And the women's profiles, um, they say, I like to travel. That's like on everyone, I like to travel. I love that, right? Because first of all, everybody likes to travel, right? What does travel mean? Also means that they expect you to be taking them. It means travel. please take me somewhere, right? Please take me somewhere, right? If I wrote such a beauty pageant kind of thing, it would be, I like success. So I personally get no thrill out of travel. You know, coming from the photography world, I'm a pretty good photographer. I And I give photography lessons. I've done it many times. And people take pictures and I'm like, don't take a picture of anything you can, you can just Google. That's useless, right? They go take a picture, you know, from eight blocks away of the Empire State Building. I'm like, Google Empire State Building. There'll be 50 better pictures. Try to look for something original, you know, <laughs> float your boat, do something really, really cool like that. 
And I think, you know, travel is kind of like that. I know you don't smell the air, but if I can friggin' Google it, like I, if I'm going to travel, it's going to be someplace I can't Google. I can't, for me, the thing that excites me, that motivates me is finding success. One of the reasons why I exited the business that I was in was in my mind, I had reached the pinnacle of the business. Okay. So oh, over there, you see up there, those are all sort of the awards I won at the end of um, end of my career, person of the year, dealer of the year, this of the year, the business I'd grown, reinvented a whole business model, all sorts of amazing things happened. And then I was like, kind of like, now what? I knew the excitement for me was gone. And I just sort of prayed, 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 and I was able to get out and get bought out and um, all of those things. So for me, that required a new challenge. And now I'm I'm getting there. I I have startup companies. I'm running a company in clean tech, and this is a very new and hard industry to to build something. And I want to make it to the top again. And that's what keeps me going. That provides the excitement. Don't need no drama, believe me. Um, but for me, that's what really keeps me going. And I really like the fact that I, I have to start from the beginning. I was big man in that industry in the electronics business, like big man. Everybody knew me. I was Fox News's photography expert. And I just walked away from that because where am I going? It's not going uphill from there, right? So that that was kind of it. And I'm trying to achieve that again. Will I do it? I, I hope so. I'm going to be relentless in my pursuit of it. But for me, that's what that's what keeps me going, keeps me young, keeps me excited, fills, flows the juices and all of that stuff. But no, not drama. So, well, I, not necessarily drama, but I think there's got to be some some level of of discomfort and some level of inherent risk, right? That excites you about the business or about the success. Because if you could just walk by, obviously, you know, if, it, if it's not worth anything, it's not worth anything. But but for you, Here, to I'm going to address I'm going to address this, right? But yeah. a little bit slightly differently than you think. Okay, what what it changed in me was it went from hesitation to action. So when you are in a situation like you're managing these kids, you have a crazy business, very, very difficult business. I had 100 people eventually working for me, 120 at one point. You're making decisions about people's lives and the livelihood of your business. You eventually learn to really be in what I call CEO mode, where you can make these very big life-altering decisions, not necessarily quickly, which you can, but you make them and you move on and you do it. You don't, you're not hesitant. You're not afraid to do it. And I, I think that that skill set is an extremely important quality of a leader and was taught to me by what I went through. I had to make decisions on the fly that would affect my children's lives forever. And you eventually just, you just do it, right? So when you're running a business like that, you, you gain that skill and that skill, that sort of um, intensity always stays with you. You know, we, we'll have these meetings in my company. I'll be like, okay, let's take the company and let's do this. And everybody's like, what? you know, are you sure? I'm like, no, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's take the risk. Let's go for it. I think it's the right thing to do. Here's the risk. Here's the reward. And you, you eventually develop that skill. It's a very powerful skill. I think it's what many, many leaders have that make them successful. And I think that comes from really focusing on what the objective is, because if the objective is perfection, then you can get stuck in the minutia of it all day long. But yeah, perfection th is the enemy of doing, one of my favorite expressions. Right, but it's not, perfection is great, but not on the granular level. You need something that looks perfect from 30,000 feet. You need, you know, the earth looks perfect from the moon, but standing here, we can see piles of garbage and shit like that. You just need it I to- used to have, I, I have a thing that I, I do in my business now, not, uh, now and I used to 
to do all the time. I ran a, um, I would run the marketing department in my uh, previous company and my marketing team would come to me and we used to have this thing. And I would say to them, I need 80% to perfection. In other words, I don't want you spending eight days producing this ad. I want you to spend enough time to get it to 80% perfect. We're not gonna sit there and make sure that every typeface is aligned perfectly and the colors balance on the color wheel and that the headline is this thing and we're gonna do this and this picture is perfectly, no, I need 80% and I need it done today. Sometimes I'll say, look, this is going, we're, we're actually gonna bid on something, it's going to the president of a company, I need it perfect, take your time. Sometimes I'm like, get, this needs to go out today, I just need, I don't care so much what it looks like, gotta look good, but just okay, make sure that there's no typos, it's, it delivers our message and get it out in two hours. So it's that kind of um, thinking, right, that allows you to move forward. A lot of people, you know, I. I used to do this a lot more. I would give talks on personal branding. This was one of my topics. I was one of the original personal branders, written articles for Entrepreneur on this. I've given talks, I have a really good talk on this, how you use your personal brand to build your, your small business. And the biggest thing that I would have, people would be like, I don't know where to start. I don't know where to start because I don't really, I, my message, I, I just don't have it exactly right. And, and I would see this all the time, this sort of failure to start, failure to start, because you're trying to be too perfect. So I am a, I love that thing is perfection is the enemy of doing. Never, never look for it. You're never going to get it anyways. Right. And it's, it's, and I think that's big picture thinking, because if you're small picture thinking, then you can afford to look at the small granular microscopic level and make sure that it's perfect. But when it's big picture, 80% in the big picture is, is much, much better than, you know, 130% and a 20% and, and the average itself. So I think that that's, that's big picture thinking. So what do you do besides success like what makes you what makes you feel alive i mean what makes you what what do you do that that you feel like sucks but still continues to hone you and, and shape you into a better person i think for me um and i know this will be a topic dear to you for me uh physical fitness has always been an enormous struggle for me my constant drive to put myself in better shape control my i don't i don't drink i don't smoke i don't gamble i don't i've like vice free kind of guy, but I tend to overeat, must be in the genes or something like that. And for me, that drive to try to maintain physical fitness is something that keeps me going all the time, working hard. Um, and I, I think that that's something that I definitely can improve upon. I always can improve upon, never quite feel like I get there. And I do struggle with it a little bit in, in some respects. So I think for me, that is a really important part of my life that I'm always working on, always trying to improve, always trying to get better and better at, and really drives me to like, you know, be disciplined and, and do all of those things. I think that's it. I know it's not, it's something a lot of people do, but for me, it's a little bit of a struggle. You know, I think it's, the, I think that's the case though for everybody, right? And if you take, if you have, a, if you maintain a white belt mentality and you always look at things as though you are a student and you're never the master, um, I'm very, you're talking and I'm, I'm thinking the same thing about myself. I could be eating better. I could be exercising more. I could be doing all of those things. Now, standing in contrast with other people, they might be like, but well, you're fine. Look at what you're doing. But that's, I'm not measuring me against you. I'm measuring me against me, just like you are. So I, I think anybody that's got a truly student mentality is always going to feel that way. And I think that that's actually 
the sign of somebody that's that's going to be successful, right? Moving closer towards the goal. Um, if it always bothers you that you that you should be doing a little bit more, even though you're doing something, I think that that's always a great place to be. Yeah, I try to, I don't think I have very good self-talk when it comes to this kind of thing. I think it comes from being that fat, chubby kid, you know, and being picked on for being that fat, chubby kid and being overweight. The thing that I didn't say before is that when all of that stuff was going on with my wife, and my business failing and all stuff, I was 300 pounds and I'm five foot 10, you know, so, and I had to lose all of that weight and put myself in shape. And I, I think being um, overweight, like obesely overweight, you know, not five pounds overweight, being really obesely overweight, it has you in the same category as being an addict. When you are an addict and you quit, you are always an addict, right? You know, people will tell you, I'm not saying anything derogatory. Understood, you're always in recovery, absolutely. You're always in recovery. I'm always in recovery. I know that I could be that 300 pound person, you know, in two months from now. Mm -hmm. I literally could let myself go. You know, I can Amazon some Twinkies into here and uh, Twinkie myself. Probably people don't even know what a Twinkie is today. Oh, I know what a Twinkie is. I know you know what a Twinkie is, <laughs> but I can, I could Twinkie and um, I can Hagen Das. That's better. I can Hagen Das myself into three hundred pounds, no problem. Mm -hmm. And so you're always sort of in that mode, literally when you eat. Like I had this morning, I had a protein bar and some, you know, organic peanut butter for breakfast. And I'm sitting there putting the peanut butter on the plate and I put, and I'm like, you're in a rush. You're putting too much peanut butter on the plate. I mean, this is what goes through my mind all mm -hmm. the, like, literally, I don't even know how to eat without, without really thinking like, is this okay? Am I allowed to do this? Did I work out? Did I do this? I live with this all my, my whole time. I think it's like being an, being an addict. I, I do. So how important is an internal dialogue for you or, or for anybody? Do you think that a dialogue needs to take place? You are a writer, so you might not have an internal dialogue so much as you do an external dialogue. How important is that dialogue? Okay, so first of all, as a writer, written tons of stuff. I don't know how as a writer, as a math major, but somehow I ended up being a writer. I think my external dialogue is disconnected in some cases from the internal dialogue. Right, because your external dialogue is curated. Yeah. Your thinking now is not what you're saying to me. Oh, you know, some of it is. Obviously, some of it is. Right with but you. But yeah. you have right, you have you have a different internal dialogue. I think that if I had to work on something still in my life, and I think it comes from a place of low self-esteem and being overweight and why you end up marrying somebody who is disordered and all of those things. I think that if there's something I need to work on, it's actually my internal dialogue. I tend to this is you know, like if, if you <laughs> I use Joel Olstein, you know, the blinker, the blinker, he blinks, you know, I don't know. I think he's hypnotizing his, his audience or something like that. You know, everything is positive. Love yourself. We need to love the world. The air we breathe is lovely and you're lovely and all of that stuff. I don't really take that approach to life. I wake up in the morning and I say to myself, if you don't achieve a whole mess of stuff today, eat right, work out, you're going to end the day a failure. So you start the day of failure, you have an opportunity through the day to potentially achieve some success. And if you don't, you're a failure when you go to bed. And that's a very negative thing. But I think it's a little bit of, um, <clears throat> I think it's a little bit of the Rocky mentality, right? It's sort of like you get up in the morning and you're like, this is my shot. Yeah. I'm a loser. This is my shot. If I don't work really hard right now, I'm going to blow the one shot I have and I'm going to go back to being a bum, right? To use his exact uh, exact language. And I think I sort of, I don't know that's why the movie appealed to me. It's always when everybody asks, what's your favorite movie of all time? I always say Rocky. It's like classic. Best movie ever. Yeah. 
but it's a classic. I mean, it's kind of old, outdated if you watch it now, but um, the message is amazing. Uh, so for me, I think that that, I'm not sure that the, what I'm really saying is I'm not that sure that that's the best way to motivate. I use negativity to motivate myself. You know, like if I don't work, if I don't try harder, harder, if I'm not harder, trying harder than everybody else, I'm not working harder. I'm not, you know, on top of everything, I'm going to fail. And if I, you know, I, I let myself down and I have three cookies instead of two cookies that I allowed myself, I'm really upset with myself. And probably that needs to be worked on. So what is one thing that right now you, you could be working harder on? I think um, loving myself more, right? I think that's really it. Of, of cutting myself some slack sometimes. And I don't mean slack in accepting poor performance. I mean, understanding that human beings are not perfect and are not machines. Self-forgiveness. You're not a machine. And you know, that actually comes from making me think about it. It actually comes from having to be a machine. When you have five little kids to take care of, running a business, money is just going in the wrong direction. You're trying to survive. You have to be on your feet 16, 18 hours a day you just sort of turn into this machine mode. I think maybe I never fully left that machine mode. I think that's probably part of it. And so when you act like a machine, you sort of ignore your own feelings. You're rough on yourself. You know, we treat our performance sports cars a little different than we treat our children. And um, I think I treat myself, I should treat myself more like my kids and a little less like my performance sports car. So I love that, by the way. I may tweet that. I hope you do. I hope you do because I think it's great. And so on that note, tell me then what does it mean to you to be human? I think for me to be human is to be the best version of yourself, not to sound cliche, to be your real self, not this sort of curated I'm talking about in particular when you act, when you're engaging with other people. And I think humans are at their best when they're being honest and open with each other, as opposed to sort of this curated or expected way. So to me, that's what being human is. When I can have people in my life, like I really like our conversation because I'm not afraid to, afraid is the wrong word. I, I just, I don't have to curate myself very much when I'm speaking to you. So I feel more human when I'm speaking to you when I'm speaking to somebody who has distorted views of the world or is looking to be offended or is just not a good person, it's hard to be human with them because you're always in this sort of protective, careful mode and you're curating yourself and that's not being human. Human is just being natural and being kind to others and letting, letting, it, letting it flow. That's my version. I think that that's great. Well, Matt Sweetwood, thank you for coming on. Leader of the pack. Get it. I'm going to put links to everything below, but where can people find you when they want to learn more about you? I am easy. Remember, I said I was the personal branding guru, so I got my name everywhere on social media. I am at M Sweetwood everywhere. Adam Sweetwood, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook. MSweetwood.com is my website. You can find everything from there. Awesome. Matt Sweetwood, thank you very much for taking the time to be on this. I know you're a busy guy. Matt Scarfo, thank you for having me. I am grateful to be here with you. All right. Take care.